Well, there's a popular children's book entitled Be Kind. Some, some parents and kids might know the book I'm talking about. It's a story of a little girl seeking to be a friend to her classmate who shows up in a new dress and spills grape juice all over that new dress at school. Despite getting a five-star review on Amazon.com, the number one review on this book that 192 people found helpful goes like this. I'm going to read you the review on this book, Be Kind. This book, full of diversity and inclusion, is actually very exclusionary. One of many books that includes examples of showing kindness to a Muslim and to a Jewish rabbi, but no Christian mentioned, who are the majority in the English-speaking world. This is an all-too-common theme in books of recent years. Diversity is good, but the intentional exclusion is not. Do not purchase if you are a Christian or not Christian, but agree that this form of proselytization is a major contributor to the fall of Western civilization and values. No respect at all for the religion that created it. Is that what Christians sound like? Are Christians known today more for their criticism than their kindness? Well, we've reached our conclusion of this little sermon series in the book of Titus. And in a world that encourages us to live our truth, we've been considering what it means to live a life consistent with God's truth. In chapter one, we considered leaders who are authentic, that is authentically godly. Last week, we considered that all of us are to live affirming lives, that is, lives that affirm the truth of the gospel. Today, we conclude with Titus chapter 3, and we see what God's truth has to say about kindness. What God's truth has to say about kindness. I'd encourage you now to open your Bibles to uh, Titus 3. You can find Titus 3 on page 1058 and 59 of your Black Pew Bibles. I think you will find it easier to follow along in the sermon if you have your Bibles open. As I read Titus 3, because I'm about to read the entire chapter all at once, I want you to consider a few things. Who did our Savior show kindness to? Who did our Savior show kindness to? And how did he show us that kindness? And third and finally, what was the result of his kindness? So who, how, what's the goal or the result? Just a couple things to keep in mind as we read through the passage. Because once we see Christ's kindness, we will see what it means to truly be kind. So please listen as I read Titus 3. Remind them, this is Paul speaking to Titus, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Here's my main point for us to consider from Titus chapter 3. Christ's kindness makes us kind. Christ's kindness makes us kind. My prayer for all of us is that we would be kind to all people because of the kindness that we have known in Christ our Savior. I have two points. Christ's kindness, our kindness. Christ's kindness, our kindness. So first, let's consider Christ's kindness. And look again at Titus 3, 3. So Titus chapter 3, little number 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Once upon a time, Paul, Titus, and all Christians were jerks. It's not a very flattering description there in verse 3, is it? Is Paul going overboard to make us feel bad about ourselves? You know, I think I may have become a Christian at maybe age four or five. So is Paul saying that three-year-old Daniel was filled with malice and envy, hateful and detesting other people? I guess you could talk to my mom. But you don't need to talk to my mom. Traces of this description in Titus 3.3 still remain in me. This is who I am in Titus 3.3, apart from Christ. I wonder if you relate. You know, we don't only see a broken relationship with God in this verse, but we see how that enmity with God vertically leads to conflict with one another horizontally. You know, look at verse 3 again. Foolishness points to a lack of spiritual understanding. Disobedience refers to our rebellion against God's authority. Deceived means that we can't see ourselves and all of creation clearly when we shut our eyes to the creator. And the result of not being in right relationship with God is what? Slavery. Enslavement to the various passions and pleasures. So those, those passions that you have, those pleasures that you have that, you know, you look to to bring fulfillment, motivation, happiness in your life, Paul's saying, in many cases, yeah, that's slavery. And we like to think that we have 
free will. But how do we explain that? Materialism, consumerism, greed, lust, addictions, even workaholics. Is this what freedom looks like? Non-Christian friend, we're so glad that you are here with us this morning. And I wonder how you would answer this simple question. What's wrong with our world? What is going on? You know, perhaps when you consider your own life, you think, you know, no one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. But does that explanation, maybe of yourself individually, account for a society that is filled with a history of genocide, war, racism, child abuse, murder, even a shooting this morning. I could go on. I'm afraid that things aren't getting better either. You know, there were more killings in the 20th century due to war than the previous 19 centuries combined. And we're not off to a great start here in the 21st century. I think as you look at Titus 3.3, we can only come to one conclusion. We are what is wrong with the world. And it stems, the root is not being in a harmonious relationship with the God of the universe, the creator and the ruler. The result, fighting, slander, war, hatred among us. You know, like some of you, I watch a lot of sports. And... I've noticed a popular sign in stadiums and arenas these days. It simply says, end racism. But ending racism or any hatred against people or against groups is going to be an uphill battle if it's up to us. Because Titus 3.3 is us. This is the world that we live in. Paul flips the script in Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Friends, there's only one way to end racism. There's only one way to end hate. There's only one way that we will know freedom from the slavery that we have to our passions and our pleasures. God must show up. God must appear. Paul says it this way. But the kindness, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared. You know, as as you drill into that rich first beginning of verse four, you might expect that the word for love in verse four would be. Agape, God's unconditional love, but it isn't. It's the word philanthropia, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, which is rather surprising. The only other place that we have that word in the New Testament, it's often translated as unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. Is this how you think about God's heart towards sinners? towards people like Titus 3.3. Yes, unconditional love, but an unusual brotherly love. Consider that the most holy God, the powerful creator of heaven and earth, would look down on people like us, small-minded, proud, 
conflict-prone humanity and say, yeah, I'm going to save them because I love them and I want to be with them. One of my favorite hymns is an old hymn, which many of you know. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. If you're feeling lost, lonely, if you're feeling even worthless this morning, I would encourage you to look this hymn up this afternoon. It speaks to what we see here in Titus 3, 4, and 5. The love of God that stoops, saves, and stays. He comes stooping down. He saves, he stays, and then he calls us friends. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Again, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I want to be as clear as I know how about this good news. We need saving. I need saving. You need saving. I'm sure there's areas in your life that you would admit that you need salvation. Maybe you need saving from that toxic relationship. Maybe you need saving from that addiction that you're struggling with. You need saving from just bad circumstances or bad luck as you see it in your life. And you know, we, we, we get it. I get it. We all long for a new and a better life. Perhaps for we long for a spouse or for children. But I'll say that our perspective is too small. We are too zoomed in on ourselves. We're like curved in on ourselves. And the problem, as we considered in Titus 3.3, is not our circumstances. It's not society. The problem is us. We are the problem. But when all hope was lost, at at its darkest moment, God literally appears as Savior. And he saves us not by anything that we do for God, but what God has done for us and his kindness. So again, non-Christian friend, I would beg you, receive this kindness today this brotherly love, this mercy, by turning from your pride and trusting in the kindness of God our Savior. Now, he demonstrated his kindness. You can read about it in chapter 2, when he gave himself for you by going to the cross, by bearing your shame, your guilt, and your condemnation so that there could be no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. And he rose again so that you might rise with him forever in eternal life. Now, if that is something that sounds compelling to you, sounds like something that you would like to talk about more, there would be nothing that I'd rather talk about this afternoon than how you can be made right with God, how you can know this brotherly love of God in Christ the Savior. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that the God of the universe would come down in Christ and not only be our Savior, but call us friend. You know how God makes this kind of new relationship possible, I think, is what we see in verses 5 through 6. So look at verses 5 and 6. The remainder of verse 5, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's almost like God, our Savior, took us uh, to the, the laundromat and put us in the biggest industrial washing machine. And he put us on the heavy soiled setting, got that Costco sized Tide detergent with 10,000% more. He dumped it on us and he washed and cleansed our dirty and soiled souls. He renewed us. He regenerated us. All we contributed to our salvation is our dirty sin. But he picked us up, dropped us in, and we came out better than new. In verse 5, this this uh, newness is called regeneration. Kids, I had to look up in the dictionary what regeneration means. And when I was looking that up, I found out something interesting. Did you know that when a crab loses, loses a claw, that a new claw grows back? Uh, this is called regeneration. It happens to many animals. Uh, Even some animals, they can lose a heart or a brain, and a new heart or brain grows back. It's amazing. Well, God's regenerating power in us, in our salvation, doesn't give us a claw. Uh, It doesn't give us a new limb, but he replaces our heart that hates his authority and that is against others, fundamentally for ourselves, and he regenerates a new heart within us. Uh, This new heart not only sees God's appearance, it loves his appearance. This new heart loves then to show kindness to others. You know, God's uh, pouring out his spirit, regenerating us, making us new. uh, It says that he does that abundantly, abundantly through Christ our Savior. And for some reason, this made me think of a time when I was pouring a glass of milk for a college friend. And uh, it's, here's, we're having a conversation. I put the glass of milk on the table, and I had like a full gallon or half gallon, I can't remember, of milk. And I thought it would be funny to just carry on the conversation, just like kind of continue to lock eyes with my friend and just continue pouring the milk until it was spilling over the edge of the milk and going everywhere. I, I know, there's something wrong with me. The point is this. God gives us himself in the spirit abundantly. It's not like we all get little pieces of Jesus, you know, a little piece of him. Everyone who has seen and loved the appearing of Christ our Savior gets Christ, gets God in abundance. Uh, This is how one 17th century uh, preacher and author, Thomas Watson, uh, who I linked to in the devotional this week, says it. The vial of God's wrath drips only, but the fountain of his mercy overflows. The fountain of his mercy overflows. God's overflowing kindness and mercy is not only like a glass of milk spilling over. Maybe you can think of it like a house that needs renovating. But Jesus doesn't come to us and say, oh, it just needs like a little bit of a paint job, some updates, put up some drywall and it'll be good. Uh, No, he knocks down the house. He even digs up the foundation that we had built, that was built in pride, fear, love of self, and he replaces that whole foundation based on his mercy, his kindness, and his love. 
question we've got to ask ourselves is why? Why would God do that? Do all this to a people like us? Look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Now, so far, we have considered that God's work on our behalf, it's, it's all relational. It's all in relational terms. But, you know, Paul also loves his courtroom language. He's got to get justification in there. So he, he uses that courtroom language of being justified. But even in that, even in that courtroom language of being justified, declared right in God's eyes, we see our new standing with God in relationship. And the rest of that verse prepares us for our future. We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This is the result of God's kindness towards people like us. We go from sinners to saints, enemies to friends. We are digging our own graves happily in our condemnation, guilt, and shame, and Christ comes and he raises us up to a new life, giving us the certainty of eternal life with him. Just look at verse, verses 3 through 7 and consider the relational journey that God's grace, his mercy, his kindness has brought us on. Does it sound too good to be true? Well, Paul says in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. These things basically being verses 4 through 7, the gospel, the good news. So friends, as we consider what the world is telling us is kindness, when it tells us to be kind, they're only getting it half right. What we have seen here in these verses is true kindness. God didn't show righteous people kindness. He didn't come for the good people. He came for the sick, for the outcasts, for the rebels, people who despised him and mocked him. You know, when he was being mocked, beaten, and he was lifted up to death on a cross, before he died, he cried out over his enemies. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God's kindness reaches to all people without distinction. God's kindness is for God's enemies. So again, non-Christian friend, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, or how unworthy you think you are. Christ's kindness overcomes unworthiness. Christ's kindness overcomes our past. Christ's kindness reaches down and saves sinners like us. Yes, even self-righteous, proud people like us. Christian friends, in light of verse 8, if we don't insist on these things, on rehearsing these things, this good news of the gospel, in our salvation, regeneration, and our eternal fellowship with God, if we don't rehearse this regularly, our hearts will grow cold. Our hearts will grow cold to the Savior and to one another. So how, Christian, are you going to insist on these things, rehearse these things this week? Are you going to rehearse Christ's kindness to you in your salvation and redemption? Make a plan. Get in God's word. 
Get together with another Christian and pray the gospel. Apply the gospel to one another. I mean, that's fundamentally why we gather here every Sunday. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves. Well, I can check that off my list. I went to church this week. Uh, We don't come here fundamentally to see friends or to build community. We gather every Sunday so that you can hear, so that I can hear, so that we can hear the trustworthy message that sounds like crazy talk, right? And then we minister, apply, and pray this message for one another. We encourage one another in this trustworthy saying. So friends, don't be a dead end to this trustworthy message. Insist to minister God's kindness to one another. We insist on these things because we believe that God's word is more reliable than our feelings. We insist on these things because it's God's truth and God's truth alone that brings eternal life. We insist on these things because only here do we see true kindness, kindness to people like us. We've been considering all throughout the book of Titus that God's grace not only saves us, but it teaches us. And here we see God's kindness not only saves us, but it teaches us to be kind. And that's what we're going to consider in our second and final point. Our kindness. Uh, Listen to how Paul begins Titus chapter 3. So we're going back up to verse 1 now. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now maybe, again, you're a non-Christian here today in that first point. Uh, where I talked about God's salvation and the need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ made you feel a little uncomfortable, uh, which I I get. It makes me uncomfortable too. Um, But here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we're like, okay, I can get on board with this. You know, that'll preach. That'll preach in Portland. Um, If I were to preach a sermon just on those two verses, like down at that um, Buddhist center down by McMinivins, I mean, they'd probably have me. Or if I went to the synagogue or uh, any mosque, or just with many of my secular and nominally Catholic uh, uh, family and friends. This is what Christianity is all about, right? Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Be kind, be good, be like Jesus to other people. He was a good teacher, you know, show mercy. Maybe except for that first part about submitting to government. You know, I don't, that's, aside from that though, let's go. This is good. But Titus 3 through 1, 3, 1 and 2 can't be taken as a soundbite out of context. The basis for these verses is what is in view of our past, verse 3, and how God has saved us in his overflowing kindness, verses 4 through 7. So with God's kindness toward undeserving rebels like us as the backdrop, let's consider how Christ calls us to be kind to all. Okay, so what strikes me about Christian kindness is that we don't get to choose who to be kind to. God chooses for us. He chooses the rulers and the authorities. Okay, so some of you are like, wait, but here, we vote in this country, actually, who the rulers and authorities are. Yeah, but I bet you didn't vote for both, or very few of you voted for both the 45th and the 46th president of the United States. Nor did you vote for everyone who's in office in our city and state. And yet, Christ considers us to submit to these leaders, to obey them. And we think, oh, you know, maybe that's just not my spiritual gift, <laughs> submitting and obeying these, uh, these authorities, these rulers. It's, it's uh, way easier to criticize them, um, to complain about them. Because, you know, I mean, just 
Just look at some of them. Foolish, deceived, enslaved by their love of maybe money or power. Hmm, wait a second. They were like us. Remember verse 3? Yes, they don't in of themselves maybe deserve our submission and obedience. But since when did the kingdom economy say that we only show kindness to those who deserve it? Aren't we thankful that Christ's kindness works differently? That it didn't merely appear to the righteous, to the deserving? You know, if kindness means only being kind to the people who we want to be kind to, to the attractive, to the compelling, to those who make us feel good about ourselves, well, then we're up a creek without a paddle. So next time, you're tempted to slander our government leaders, maybe just look in the mirror. They represent us in more ways than one. Do you know what I mean? They are us. And God puts people in positions of authority, not because they deserve it or because they are so worthy, but because in submitting to undeserving, sometimes even corrupt leaders, we demonstrate our trust in God. I mean, just even consider the context in which Paul wrote this letter. It's the Roman Empire. They're killing Christians. Now, I will say that submitting to leaders doesn't mean that we disobey our conscience or that we sin, that we participate in sin. Uh, Christians have been talking about that a lot over the last two years, but that's not Paul's concern here. He is concerned, like we thought about last week, that we adorn the good news of the gospel in all our relationships, particularly that most difficult relationship of submitting to who God has put as our authorities and rulers. Well, in verse 2, we see that we are to slander no one, including our, our rulers and authorities. We're to avoid fighting, to, always, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Again, like I said, we like to choose who to be kind to. We like it when uh, being kind serves our schedule, our cause, our passions, and makes us look good and feel good about ourselves. That's when we like to be kind. But Paul says, uh-uh. Slander no one. Be kind and always show gentleness to all people. And in view of what we just saw in verse 3, especially be kind to those who are least deserving. Like the people who hate you. I know some of you work like every day with people who don't like Christians that much, who can't even stand Christians. As we considered in our introduction, they may actually have some good reasons. Um, But when you are kind to people who hate you in your work or in your neighborhood, that's when we start seeing the kindness of God our Savior. Jesus famously said on the Sermon on the Mount, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? 
Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, even in the first century, kindness was popular. Kindness to friends. But Jesus came to revolutionize kindness by redirecting the object of our kindness. So, who do you find difficult to love? Who do you find yourself having a hard time being kind to and always showing gentleness to? It could be a family member, co-worker, neighbor, someone in this church, someone in authority. Maybe it's because someone has just a totally different personality or they have different value system or beliefs. The person who you struggle to show love to, you know who, who that person is. You, you don't only have to think of one person. You don't need to write down their name, but have a person in your mind. And Paul has a reminder for you this morning. In view of who you are, apart from Christ's mercy, and in view of the kindness that has appeared to you, be kind to that person. Be kind. Well, what, what does that mean? Does it mean, you know, that we need to be best friends with that person? We have to invite them to move into our house? No, I don't think so. But being kind also doesn't mean merely tolerating that person, avoiding that person. Instead, you need to be ready to do every good work for that person's benefit or good. I think it's right here. Be ready for every good work for that person's benefit or good. You use the self-control that God has given you by his spirit and you avoid fighting. You never slander because to do so would be to tell a lie about how God has spoken about you in Christ. Christ didn't count his sin, didn't count your sin against you. He, Christ didn't gossip about you to the Father and the Spirit. No, instead, the holy triune God conspired how to appear in kindness and to make you new. So if you have been made new, slandering and fighting, that's the old you. That's who you used to be. You know, the old you that was enslaved to your various passions and pleasures, sold in slavery. That's who you used to be. It's not merely slandering and fighting that we're to avoid. Look at what else those who are new in Christ's kindness are to avoid in verse 9. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. You know, kindness to the unexpected and undeserving highlights the kindness that we ourselves have received and that that has appeared in a Christ our Savior. So avoiding foolish arguments and disputes that are unprofitable keeps like the darkness of our former passions and pleasures from like blocking out the kindness of God's kindness, uh, the brightness of Christ's kindness. You see, the, the false teachers in Titus 1 that we considered, 
They weren't merely eloquent academics who loved to debate the finer points of theology. No, their debates were leading to works and heart attitudes that denied the gospel. Paul judges teaching based on the fruit that it produces. Paul judges teaching based on the fruit that it produces in the church. So if there's foolish ideas, debates, and disputes that are leading to division in the church, Paul says, avoid these things because they are unprofitable and worthless. He even goes as far to say in verse 11, reject a divisive person. You know, good thing that we don't have uh, any disputes, debates, quarrels, differences of opinion or perspective that could lead to division or a lack of kindness in the church today. Friends, certain ideas and debates don't bring about the good fruit of being devoted to good works of kindness and love. We should avoid those topics. And this is hard in our age of social media. Like any time, we can just pull a phone out of our pocket, tell the world how we really feel. Would, I wonder, would social media exist if there was a Holy Spirit algorithm that filtered all our posts based on, is this kind? Is this profitable and for the benefit of all? Friends, we are the Holy Spirit algorithm. So let's get to work. Now let me just be clear. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This doesn't mean that we need to avoid uh, rigorous theological discussion or debate, that anything that has the potential to divide, we don't talk about those things. If we, you know, if people will disagree, we're just not going to avoid that unity in Christ. You know, that's not what I'm saying. Um, if, if this means avoiding difficult doctrines uh, of the faith, I wouldn't have addressed uh, women's roles, like women submitting to their husbands last week in Titus 2. It's not like we avoid Scripture's clear teaching because it has the potential to divide. Now, I don't think uh, Paul would classify the doctrine of gender roles, for example, as a foolish debate because he addresses it multiple times in his, in his letters, in his writings. He, he would say that a doctrine like that has, is an opportunity to demonstrate the beauty of God's creation design. But... Even in good and healthy, rigorous debates and discussions on theological truth, check yourself. Do you have the mind of building up the church in unity and love? Or do you tend to get carried away by your passions? Do we lose sight of being kind? and what will be profitable and worthwhile to all. So, friends, next time you find your heart start pumping and you want to get going on a topic that you are passionate about, be honest with yourself. We are so easily deceived. And discern, is this discussion, is the comment I'm about to make for the good and benefit of all? Or... Could it be unprofitable and even worthless? Again, the false teachers claimed to know God. I'm sure they had some theology right. They weren't all wrong. 
but their works denied God because of their lack of kindness, self-control, and submission to God-given authority. Uh, They seem to be characterized more by criticism than by kindness. Verses 10 through 11 uh, speak to the need to remove a divisive person who goes on sinning. Uh, Now, at first glance, this seems pretty judgmental and harsh to our modern ears, but I think this is a kindness. You consider who the church is and how we love one another in the truth. We must warn a divisive person of the danger, do you see that, of condemnation in verse 11. If they don't change, they could be condemned. So to not confront them, to not go through the Matthew 18 steps of church discipline would be unkind to them. You know, biblical church discipline, when humbly practiced, is kindness. It's not ultimately uh, when the church practices justice. Uh, The Lord will uh, sort that out in the end. The Lord, we entrust justice to the Lord in these kinds of situations. Remember, in Hebrews, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So we must be willing to practice church discipline, finally, out of love and kindness for the sinner and for the good and the purity of the church. You know, Paul concludes his letter to Titus in verses 12 through 15. We have some final instructions that should characterize what it means to get busy with good works that God's grace teaches us to be devoted to. Do you see that in verses 12 through 15? You know, all throughout this this little letter, Paul has stressed that the glorious gospel of grace not only saves us, as I've said multiple times, but it, it doesn't just save us from our sin, but it teaches us how to live good lives, lives of good works. And today in Titus 3, we have considered and seen that the character of those good works must be a Christ-like kindness to all people. Notice in Paul's final instructions that another group we get to show kindness to are those who are sent out for gospel ministry. Again, biblical kindness is not just concerned in showing kindness to people who can pay us back. When we send people out, when we train people up and love them and send them out for the sake of the gospel, uh, that is Christ-like kindness. Because it's not something that we will receive profit from, like in this life. We just pour into and then they leave. It's hard. It doesn't always feel good to say goodbye to friends. But when we declare, the, we declare the truth of the trustworthy message when we're willing to show that kind of kindness. Friends, I hope you've been encouraged over these last two weeks when we've considered the amazing grace and unusual kindness of God our Savior. But Paul doesn't merely want Titus to encourage the church so they feel affirmed and loved in the Lord. The reason Christ's kindness has appeared is so that we might be kind like him. Isn't that what we clearly see in chapter 3, verse 8? Paul says in Titus 3, 8, that he wants Titus to insist on these things. Why? So that we who have believed might be careful to devote themselves to good works. In case you missed it, he says it again in verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. The proof that you have seen that you have loved Christ's kindness appearing in our Savior is when you carefully, thoughtfully, strategically conspire, even with one another, to do good works, to do good works of kindness to the least deserving. 
the least likely. People like us. Really, anyone and everyone that God puts in our path, that's who we show Christ's kindness to. It's a little overwhelming when we think about it. We think we are not up for the task. But let God's grace and mercy appearing overwhelm us each and every day and give us the strength and the joy to practice this kind of kindness. This kind of kindness is good and profitable for everyone and praise God that his good work has brought us such great profit at Christ's expense. So Henson, are we known more for our criticism or for our kindness? Will you pray that God would soften your heart to that person that you are in conflict with, that person that you have difficulty loving? Will you ask for help from a Christian friend to hold you accountable for maybe ways that you unknowingly are slandering others? You know, when we give ourselves carefully, when we devote ourselves to these good works, God's kindness appears in us. So how will you ask God's kindness to work in and through you this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ultimately it's a mystery to us why you would call those who are so curved in on themselves and pride and selfishness and various passions and pleasures, why you would set your love on us, why you would show us such unusual kindness and grace. And when we are, are helpless and given to all sorts of worldly things and the desires of the flesh, that you would say, mine, and call us your children, call us friends through Christ our Savior. Lord, we praise you for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown kindness and mercy to this congregation. We thank you for even in our many failings, you are working in and through this congregation to show kindness to one another for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the evidences that we see of that each week as we seek to love one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds. As we serve the children that cannot pay us back, as we love the elderly, as we encourage one another with this trustworthy saying of how you have invaded our hearts and made us yours and given us yourself in abundance. Oh Lord, we simply say thank you. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.